1: This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com writingexcuses. Season 11. Episode 49.
2: This
3: is Writing Excuses Elemental Ensemble with Michael Damien Thomas.
1: Fifteen minutes
3: long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I'm Dan. I'm Howard. And once again, we have a special guest for you. Uh, The number one requested thing we get is to have more editors on. And so, we brought on Michael. Will you tell them a little bit
4: about yourself? Well, hi. I am Michael Damian Thomas, and I am the co-publisher and co-editor-in-chief of the Hugo Award-winning magazine, Uncanny Magazine. And you've done anthology work, too, haven't you? Yes, I have. I was the co-editor of Hugo-nominated Queer Sick Time Lords and co-edited an anthology called Glitter and Mayhem.
3: Excellent. Um, And we are going to talk about ensemble stories. The fun thing about this one was when I pitched this idea of the elemental genres, which, as is our tradition, Howard actually named, um, I just had this concept the first one that popped out of people's mouths was, do we get to talk about heist stories? Yes. <laughs> um, and I said, yes, but I feel that heist stories are a subset, a large subset of a g- different genre, um, which we talked through in Mary, I believe, called Ensemble, which is the the story where a team of people, each having a different role and individual part to play, get together to accomplish something, and the story is moved by our interest in their interaction
5: and how they pull off some important goal working together. Yeah, in my head, as much as I love heist stories, I keep thinking of this genre as the Michael Crichton genre. Yeah. Because he loves doing this, you know, because he has great train robbery, which is a heist, but then also uh, Sphere, even Jurassic Park, is let's get all these people together, watch them bounce off of each other, and together they will solve a problem. Yeah, a good non-heist example is also Firefly, mm-hmm. except for the episodes mm-hmm. that were heists. Yes. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: but just to just to flag that it doesn't have to be something that is all action adventure or event oriented. Uh, a a uh, classic ensemble show is Facts of Life.
3: Yes,
6: And mm-hmm.
1: and that is, you know, and any uh, school drama is definitely going to be an ensemble piece. And there what you're looking at is characters who are, are trying to solve uh, character issues. Um, right. So it's still trying to solve a thing, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's them trying to make themselves better people.
3: Well, West Wing is a classic oh, yeah. example yeah. in yeah. these sorts of things where you have this large ensemble drama cast who each have a different role behind the scenes in some yeah. large show or political entity or things like this. Yeah, all,
5: all, of, the, all of the Aaron Sorkin shows. Yes.
3: E- even 30 Rock is... Oh, 30 Rock is yeah. the most like this, I think, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The most long-running
4: TV dramas, yeah, legal dramas, medical yeah. dramas from St. Elsewhere to Grey's Anatomy to,
3: you know, ER. All the Star Treks. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Friends. Friends. Friends is basically nothing except ensemble.
3: That is correct. So my question then is, why are these so compelling? Why are they so common? Um, what can we learn about observing these very excellent ensembles that we've all loved? I read them. I mean, that, that camaraderie, that, that page
6: turning, I read them for the escapism of, you know, imagining that I have that many friends. <laughs> 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 and, we, I mean, we laugh at that. Okay, you know, a little self-deprecatory humor there. But really, when you watch a show like like Firefly or like Leverage, we become friends with those mm-hmm. people. And that is that is part of the experience. In the same way that you fall in love with the characters in a romance, I feel like I become friends with the characters in an ensemble piece. And that
5: actually is... That's a neat brain hack, however they're doing yeah. it. That is well, really cool. We, we talked so much last month about issue and about how it's important to show different sides of an issue... That's one of the things that Ensemble really kind of inherently does is let's show all of these very different and very contrasting personalities, whether mm-hmm. they're different on a particular issue or just on their background and, and how they look at life. And the you know, the the drama, the page turning hook comes from watching those different personalities bounce off mm-hmm. of each other. And having all the different character arcs so that you have
4: you can have seven or eight different character arcs going on simultaneously, going in different directions, and then interacting with each other at interesting points in the different character arcs and then kind of pinging off each other to bring that arc to a different conclusion that yeah, maybe you didn't expect.
1: Yeah. I think that's, that's a really smart thing that, that it is the intersections of those character arcs that makes an ensemble piece compelling because an ensemble um like, you can have a book that has a ton of different POV characters, but if they're not interacting with each other, mm. if, they are not, yeah. if they're not a group, uh, it's not an ensemble piece. Mm-hmm.
5: Not, not to harp... We're talking so much about TV shows because they do this so well. Uh, Community was brilliant because of the way that it would combine different characters every week. You know, this week our A story is this one and this one that we never really see interact much, and now that changes the entire tone of the episode because of how unique they are when put together. Mm-hmm. To bring up an example that is not a TV show, Schlock
3: Mercenary is at its <laughs> core an ensemble piece. Um, and more and more through the history of the story, you have done exactly what Dan was talking about. You'll have A plot, B plot, plot, C plot, and often A plot is two characters we know but haven't been together. Uh, B plot is two new characters, and C plot is two characters we know also doing something, um, often it, destructive. And, you know, I mean, the whole strip grows out of my desire to pretend that I have friends. <laughs> <laughs> so Cruel I'm going to what I really like about it, and looking at Schlock as an example, uh, is I love a team of specialists. When I wanted to write Mistborn, which is a high story, I boiled down and said, why do I want to write this? What's, what's great about this? And it was, I realized, every character having their specialty allows them all to need each other in a really cool way. I can have hyper-competency and kind of um, holes in what the team can do at the same time, which is exciting to a writer because it gives you your flaws and your strengths wrapped up in one. It's just a different person has to be here to do this thing that we need.
1: I, th- I think the thing that, that you just hit, which I hadn't really thought about as being a key element of uh, ensemble piece, is that the is how they each they, they need each other. I think an ensemble cast has to be interdependent yeah. in order for it to really be an ensemble.
3: And usually it is an ensemble of people who each have different skills yeah. and, and yeah. strengths. And, you know, the, the movie, we've talked about it before, uh, but Guardians of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. was an ensemble piece, and the goal of that film was to show, hey, here are these wacky people who alone are terrors to the universe and misfits at best, and who together... Their strengths complement one another to the point that they made the actual climax of the film. They win by holding hands, right? That yeah, is how yeah. they defeat the bad guy. If you haven't seen this movie, they hold hands, and mm-hmm. together that makes the bad guy they, get defeated. They hold hands after a quick dance-off.
6: Yes. yes. It,
4: it is pretty much saving the universe with the Care Bear stare. Yes. <laughs> Rainbows. I hope we ruined that movie for
5: at least one person. <laughs> See, but no, I um, love
3: that, because even though it was a little on the nose, m- a lot of ensemble films that try it, where they fail, I feel, mm-hmm. is there. Like the Mission Impossible films, which have their strengths, mm-hmm. fail at being ensemble films yes. when the television show was originally an ensemble piece, because it is, let's get the superhero I- and have him do stuff, and
5: everybody yeah. else fades away, and the superhero does what the superhero does. Mm-hmm. So when... Uh a year, couple of years ago when they announced hey we're going to start making new star wars movies i thought oh that's great i love star wars this is going to be awesome and then a few months later they announced oh by the way we're also going to make a new star trek tv show and i went bananas and i re- and i couldn't i was trying to wonder why like i always considered myself kind of equal opportunity fan but but no and, and and i realized it was that ensemble aspect that is what i loved and you know star trek the next generation as an example ended the same way. It ended with a poker Mm -hmm. game. They're Mm -hmm. all sitting down as friends. And it's that ensemble aspect, the team of specialists, that I am the best science officer or I am the best engineer, but I still can't solve this problem without you and you and you. Good example of
6: uh, ensemble done well in a recent book is uh, uh, Matt Wallace's Sin Du Jour series, uh, Envy of Angels, Lust Locked, uh, Pride's Spell, in which the, the cast is a, they are a catering company that provides food for su- supernatural entities and demons, okay? And a, a chef's line, you know, a, a catering line, you've, you know, you've got your sous chef, you've got the person who cuts things, you've got the people who run out and grab ingredients that you really just can't find anywhere else. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful ensemble story, um, and I love it because I've never seen an ensemble told with cooking before. It's, it's, huge, mm-hmm. it's huge fun, and it does. I think it does all these things right.
2: Hey, writers, are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today.
0: Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app.
3: Um, because that's a great segue into books. But when I went to Michael, and I was trying, oh. you know, I do this thing before, before where I'm like, I'm trying to pry out of the person what they want to promote or a story or things like this. Michael said, well, I'll just promote the whole magazine. And I stopped and thought, well, yes, of course you should. That is exactly the right thing to do because it is an ensemble piece every issue. What a great way to spin that. So
2: can you tell
4: us <laughs> about <take> Uncanny? <laughs> well, yeah, that was obviously the brilliant thing I was thinking of when I did that. With That's <laughs> how magazines and anthologies are. It, that is actually a very, you know, that is how we look. I look at each issue. How Lynn and I, when we co-edit, and with Mitchie, Trota, our managing editor, our entire team, we do look at it that way because we, we see all these different pieces bringing different voices into an issue, just like with an anthology. And they do ping off each other, and we are trying to... You know, we'll, we'll, when we put in the, the fiction, we want the fiction to sometimes be in dialogue with, you know, the different stories in dialogue with each other, the different characters in dialogue with each other. And then the essays come in and they are adding other elements to, I mean, we don't necessarily do theme issues, but we find, and it, the funny thing is we don't do theme issues and yet we find that they keep happening. And, I, you know, whether it's just timing or where our brains are or just a thing happens you know, on the internet and that's how all submissions look for a while because everyone's angry about this thing. You know, yeah, that's funny on the Internet that happens.
3: No, I've, I've yeah. heard that from other editors before, that they are not looking for a theme, but then they find the pieces they bought all actually connect in really interesting ways.
4: Yeah, I, like we, in, the, in an upcoming issue, there is a Cat Howard story – and an Alex Bledsoe story of the Charco. Completely different. I mean, they, these are not the same writer, and they're, they're both great writers. I love them dearly. But Alex is doing one of his Eddie LaCrosse stories. And this is anyone who's familiar with Alex's work, he's a hard boiled sword and sorcery detective. And Kat Howard is doing a lyrical thing because Kat does lyrical, beautiful. She, her first novel, Roses and Rochas, came out from Saga. But their stories are both taking Arthurian, they start with Arthurian's beginning points. And then they go into kind of looking at Arthurian myths, updating them, and challenging certain misogynistic things. It's just one is from Alex's point of view, and one is from Kat's point of view. And because they are such different people, it's fascinating. So th- the stories end up in dialogue. And then we have another reprint from Amala Motar, that, who, which is another fairy tale retelling from an anthology coming up from Saga uh, called The Starlet Wood, which also seems to be in the same dialogue. It was not planned, and yet here will probably come out, you know, in November and December in issue 13. And the essays underneath, we have an essay coming from uh, Monica Valentinelli, which is just an, you know, she's a, a writer, and she works a lot in the gaming industry. And a lot. this is an essay about her own life and, and becoming a professional in gaming and just... Being angry about having as a as a woman professional in gaming and then in SF too, having to go through the same stuff. I kept,
6: right. Yeah. Right. You <laughs> now, say November, December. Uh, yeah. This is, this this episode is airing in December, so <gasps> fair listener. So listener, you can hear that. you can. And read where this. can they get it?
4: Well, they can get it at uncannymagazine.com dot uh, when it is free on the website, or they can get the entire issue comes out on the first. Tuesday of November, which this is probably already passed at that point, but you can get all the stories and essays and poetry, uh, and two months worth. Uh, then it gets split in half between half of it's free in November, half it's free in December. Um, but it can be bought as an ebook from all good ebook retailers
3: across the internet. Excellent. So, second half, half of the podcast, let's talk about specifics, if you have any suggestions, on how to build an ensemble story. We're going to start with Mary.
1: So one of the things that I was thinking about is that um, when when Howard was talking about the, uh, the, the cooking... Um, Sin jour. jour. I was thinking about Iron Chef in Kitchen Stadium. Mm. And the thing about Iron Chef is that there's a big group of people that are supporting the celebrity chef, but it is not an ensemble. And the reason that it's not an ensemble is because they don't have the same emotional weight. They are they are background characters. Mm-hmm. So just, again, having a large cast of characters isn't enough. I think that this large cast of characters has to have, each character has to have a similar emotional weight. Like if you look at Lies of Locke Lamora, each of those characters, when they come in, has similar emotional weight in terms of the way they, uh, the, the amount of story that they're taking up. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're looking at some of the, uh, the Oceans 11, 12, and 13, the, as they add characters, a lot of the characters become supporting cast rather than full ensemble members. And I think that is because they are not given the, the same emotional weight right. as, as the other characters. And what I mean by that is um, that, that they don't have, they don't have a, a character plot of their mm-hmm. own. When I
3: was building Mistborn, I started with an ensemble book. And I've talked about this a lot. I talk about it in the annotations that halfway through I realized this is an epic fantasy. Um, even though I'm using a heist veneer to it and there is a heist in it, it is not a heist book. And that was a very important moment for me to realize that it's not a bad thing to be like, oh, I'm not writing an ensemble story. And I wasn't. I was writing a mentor and apprentice story with a cast around them who are going to help train the apprentice. But it was at its core an epic fantasy mm-hmm. coming-of-age story.
5: Yeah. So when I started writing the partial sequence, my intention was to make that into an ensemble story, in part because I was deliberately kind of, this is going to be my version of Battlestar Galactica, and it didn't end up that way. And part of it was because of the the different differing emotional weights. But looking back on it, I think one of the big mistakes I made, and and I'm I'm happy with partials. I'm not saying that it was a mistake, but that one of the reasons it did not turn into an ensemble is because I didn't specialize the characters enough. Mm -hmm. So when I sat down to write the Mirador series with Blue Screen, I specifically chose what are the specialties I'm looking for. I need a software hacker, I need a hardware hacker, I need a con man, you know, these different things. And then once I had those, that forced me in outlining to find roles for them all, which then forced me to give each character more of an arc and more weight.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I do think that it, it's important to say that you can actually have, I think, an ensemble cast without giving each of the ensemble members a POV. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. a lot of their uh, ensemble work and their, their own individual plot arcs can happen off stage, and, and we, can, we can know about it because of the interactions that they have with the POV characters. So it don't feel like, oh, I, I want an ensemble cast. I must, therefore, have 11 different points of view, unless you're Brandon. <laughs> well,
5: <laughs> In which case, 11 is low.
1: Howard,
3: I want to pitch this at you, because you've been doing this exclusively for 10-plus years.
6: Um, One of the best examples I can come up with for ensemble done well and and a technique that I think will map well for writers is the compression of storytelling that was used in Guardians of the Galaxy Mm -hmm. as compared to the massive Marvel Cinematic Universe that was used to build up to the Avengers. Mm -hmm. In Guardians of the Galaxy, we have to meet the members of the ensemble and like them and know what they do with about two and a half minutes each Mm -hmm. of screen time. And the one I'm gonna use for an example is um, uh, Gamora. When we meet her, in color terms, she is green and everything else around her is blue-black. She stands out visually. How do you do that with words? I'm not sure, but once you know how it's done with color, you can look at it and say, "Oh, mm-hmm. I, I have to, you know, I have to draw some sort of contrast here." Um, she is being beaten down on by one person and propped up by another person, and the way she talks, you can kind of tell she's right. You can tell she's super competent, and you're afraid of what she's going to do, but you're confident that she's good at it, and the way she has been framed you've decided, well, everybody else in the room is obviously evil, so even though she says she's going to go be an assassin, she's a good guy. And, and they did that in two minutes. Mm-hmm. And when you are writing ensemble stuff, uh, and especially in comics, you know, which is where I'm working, you have to use whatever tricks you've got for compressing the storytelling, making a scene do multiple things so that that character is interesting, is funny, is empathetic, we know what their specialty <laughs> is, we know perhaps what their weakness is as early as possible um, so that we are engaged so that when they get together, you know, when they first meet another character and you start seeing these intersections that Mary mentioned, we are already excited about it. We're already excited to see the fusion.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, well, I- oh,
6: sorry. Go do, ahead, go uh, go uh, ahead. Well, well, not doing
4: that in an awkward manner because uh, that immediately made me think of Encounter at Farpoint, which, bless Eugene Roddenberry, he's trying to do that. And do those introductions. And there is very much these long soliloquies of, ah, so you are data, and these are the things about you as a person as an Android, and you kind of wish to have emotions. You know, There's a long Riker speech, like this is the most awkward thing ever to say. <laughs> here is this man, here here's data specialties, here's his background, and a quick quip, and we are off. Mm-hmm. I-
1: I think the thing that 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 the two of you are talking about the way to avoid that that awkwardness is is having multiple things happen in the same mm-hmm. scene um and one of the things I just realized that pretty much every ensemble piece has a, a key element to it, which is part of demonstrating each character's uh um different strength is that they have a competence porn scene
4: mm-hmm.
3: yeah
1: which is which is where the um it, that is the scene where the characters demonstrate how good they are at whatever it is that they do and they generally are doing something it's like and now i'm going to wire a bomb together while we talk about our love for fine dining mm-hmm. you know it it is <clears throat> or the fact that you were snoring last night you know that that those there are two things happening there one is demonstrating uh, their different personalities as well as their different strengths mm-hmm. watch
3: how um even though the Avengers had the whole weight of the Marvel Cinematic Universe to it, watch how Joss reintroduces characters, particularly the characters who've been side characters in other Mm. films who are now coming to the forefront, um, Black Widow and Hawkeye, and you will see this exact thing happening.
6: Um, You and I remember mm. Budapest very differently. That Mm -hmm. line, I I love it, and it has so much story weight in it, and it's one sentence.
1: Yeah, and that's also an example of Plot things that happen, or character things that happen off stage. Like, mm. they don't actually tell us what happened in Budapest. It's just you and I remember it very differently. The other one is um, when Agent Colson comes in with Pepper. Right. And she's like, How's the cellist? Mm-hmm. And, and although that is not demonstrating competence, it is demonstrating that there is, that character has a life outside the story, which is one of the things that you really have to do to keep them from being a supporting character and having them being an un- mm-hmm. part of the ensemble.
5: Yeah, We so, have
1: to call this, oh, I'll let you go bummer. ahead, Dan. But I was just going
5: um, to say, to close the loop on Star Trek, Encounter at Farpoint is so awkward, and <laughs> like, like you're saying. Um, the, the very first episode of Deep Space Nine, while still not perfect, does a much better job, and in part because it is using drama in addition to info dump. We meet Quark because Quark is causing trouble. Yeah. You know, we meet uh, Kira because Kira is pissed off at the captain. You know, and we get to Mm -hmm. see, we get their background, but we also get so much character at the same
4: time. And then we get Cisco being clever, like, like with Quark, the Quark situation, and making him a community leader in order to solve multiple problems at once. And it adds more depth to him. It adds depth to Quark. You understand a little bit more. Of, and, and then Odo, of course, comes in with his
5: mm-hmm. relationship with Quark. And, and so you're yeah. seeing personalities instead of just dossiers. Yeah.
3: Well, we have to stop here. We've gone like 25 minutes almost. <laughs> uh, yes, but you can tell we love this topic. We will be back to talk about it again um, in a few weeks. I'm going to give you some homework, though. When we were talking earlier, one of the things we realized is we love ensemble stories that aren't always just the obvious heist, though we do love the heist, obviously, as well. Um, we want you to go look at some different professions, particularly ones that have some sort of front person leading the charge um, and like a chef maybe on, um, on a show like that. And we want you to identify all the roles that happen behind the scenes to make that person succeed. And we want you to try, to try to design a story that doesn't use the front person at all and uses all of these different roles supporting them behind the scenes. And do that for a couple different jobs. See what you come up with. We want to give a special thank you to Michael Damian Thomas. Thank you for having me. And we want to thank the Writing Excuses Cruise members.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
3: This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write.
1: Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson.